2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he is made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of their surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You may be seated. Well, thanks so much, Kurt, and uh, good morning. How are you all doing? Good, good. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Um, how many of you were at the men's conference? I, only men put up their hands, I guess, but uh, out, of, out of those who are men, so a good number. We had about 300 at the men's conference, which is just amazing. I had a great time. By the way, apologies for those of you who were at the men's conference. You're going to hear me speak about, I don't know how many times this weekend. This is the fourth time, so... Um, I was going to say third time's a charm, but maybe fourth time it will be okay. I bored you the rest of the three times. Maybe this one will be all right. Um, so um, it was a great time, men's conference, and now we're looking at the Bible. So if you have a Bible in front of you, Second Corinthians chapter 9, we just heard it read out. There are pew Bibles. Get that open in front of you. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, it's right there in the worship folder as well. If you read it on, on an iPad or phone, that's, that's fine too, as long as you're not playing. Angry birds at the same time. So, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Now, this is the last in our series on um, biblical answers to life's big questions. And we're doing this series. Some people came to us uh, at the end of last year and said, look, you know, we love what's going on um, at College Church. We love um, this teaching from the book of Romans and how you're applying it to a number of different cultural things, practical things. Um, but there's so much going on in our culture right now. I think a lot of us feel that. Um, we, we would really appreciate if you could speak from the Bible on some of these big cultural issues. So that's what we've done. Next week, we're going, if you're, you've been waiting, when are we going to go back to Romans? You know, next week, um, we're getting back into Romans. We'll circle back to this um, series occasionally. So when we come to Valentine's Day weekend, um, that Sunday is February the 14th. It actually is Valentine's Day. So it seemed natural to um, have a, you know, deal with love and romance and sex <clears throat> uh, on, the, on that Sunday. So 
But next week we're back in Romans. So this is the last of the series on this, uh, on this theme. And we've looked at how to engage with contemporary culture from the book of Daniel. A huge resource on how to do that. We just touched, uh, skimmed along the surface there in many ways from the book of Daniel. We looked at the gospel and racism. How Jesus reached out to this Ethiopian eunuch and included all nations now together under the banner of the gospel, triumphing over all the divisions in the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the unique message of Christ. So we did that last week. Now, today we're looking at, from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I hope you've got your Bibles open, um, we're looking at money. Um, I feel like I need to, you know, sing that song from Fiddler on the Roof or something. Um, I mentioned that last night at the satellite service, and I immediately quoted f- uh, uh, from ABBA instead, money, money, money. So I had my, my pop culture references confused momentarily. Um, the, as we get into this, what the Bible's saying about this particular big question, we need to get some things out on the table, otherwise we're not really going to be able to, it'll be harder for us to hear what God's saying to us. So, look, money is one of those matters that it's just hard to talk about in church. Why is that? A number of different reasons. So, one is because everyone thinks there must be some kind of subtext, right? So, you may have even experienced this. You know, the, the senior pastor gets up to talk about money. And so, there must be some kind of subtext. Like, well, it's a one-two punch. You know, money this week, building program the next week, you know. Um, there's no subtext, right? This is us, this is me shepherding us from God's word about this huge, this huge matter for all of our lives. No subtext. Um, and, and it's really not just about money, it's about stewardship. Um, one person who does a lot of work in this area of generosity um, shared with me an acronym this week, which I think is very helpful, the acronym LIFE. So L, labor, I, influence, uh, F, finance, our finances, our money, F, finance, E, expertise. So really our whole life, labor, influence, finance, expertise, all this to be stewarded, uh, and when it is, it sets us free. Um, some people, when they hear this um, matter of money is going to be addressed, immediately springs... Uh, to their mind, sort of caricatures of preachers who are all sort of bling and, you know, drive around in Rolls Royces and they uh, fleece, you know, they're fleecing the flock, they're not feeding the sheep, right? Um, And then there's the prosperity gospel, uh, which some of you may have heard of, the prosperity gospel. Um, The prosperity gospel really has the idea that if you give money to the church, You'll get even back, more back in return. It's really a kind of religious pyramid scheme, frankly. And um, uh, it's very, very wrong. But like so often, wrong ideas are attractive because they're close to the truth. But the little bit off that they go, like a ship that travels out from harbor and then just gets a little bit off, it ends, off, ends up in a very different place. Uh, very, very wrong, but often the biggest lies are closest to the truth. You may have heard, you know, what's his name? Creflo Dollar, the guy who wanted to fund a $6 million plane from his church or something. Um, now, Paul is, 
It's not as if Paul is saying here that giving money away is bad for you. No, no. He, one of the things Paul is saying here that we'll see is that to give is, is actually good for you. Uh, but we'll need to recalibrate completely. Um, and then, you know, getting these things on the table that could be barriers to hearing what God's saying. And then, in recent years, because of the banking crisis, right, happened a few years ago, the whole idea of profit um, has become associated in, you know, in some people's minds, a sort of evil manipulation, you know, making profit in business or at work. And Marxism has become uh, more popular in various ways. I was actually, many of you know, I was trained in secular environment, and I was actually pretty much trained in a Marxist approach to history. And uh, if you know anything about Marxism, all about the grand movements of history and, the, and class warfare and the economic theory that comes out of history, uh, a Marxist approach to history is pretty much Marxism in many ways. I think I understand it reasonably well. Um, one of the ironies, actually, of Marx's own life, you know, he was sort of against profit and making money and, and all that. One, he, was, he was in London and absolutely dirt poor. So poor, he, he literally, you, you can read this in the biographies of Marx, uh, he literally could not pay for bread. So he and his family were eating, and the only way they could eat was not to pay the bills. And so the baker would come around and say, you know, hey, can you pay up? And what Marx would do is he'd hide in the living room behind a chair or something and send one of his children to go and say, Marx is not here. I'm sorry, we can't do it this week. So how did he survive? Well, the only way Marx survived was by being given money by one of his friends, a guy called Engels. And what do you know? Engels' money came from his father's, Engels' father's very, very capitalistic industrial enterprise in the north of England. So here you have, you know, Karl Marx spending years and years in the British Library, the famous reading room there, writing about how capitalism is evil and all the rest. And he has the solution to how to make economics work. And not only is he dirt poor himself, which you think might be a little bit of a clue that he's going down the wrong track, um, but uh, he's only surviving because he's been given free handouts from the money being made in a capitalistic enterprise. Uh, So there's a lot of deep irony. Not that there's no insight in it. Of course there is. It's just ironic. Actually, and we're gonna, this is the framework really for what we're going to learn. I, I think Wes, uh, from the Bible, I think Wesley, John Wesley, long before Marx, long before Karl Marx, John Wesley actually had it better. So his standard advice was make as much as you can, save as much as as you can, give as much as you can. So now, uh, this passage. Now, this passage we're looking at here has a particular context. And, you know, we're looking at Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 to 15. Obviously, it's in the context of these letters of Paul to the Corinthian church. And I've got to give you at least some of the backstory. 
So, Paul had planted the church in Corinth. It was new Corinth. Um, it was, uh, had been refounded by Julius Caesar. It had been destroyed by the Romans beforehand. Uh, old Corinth had, now it was new Corinth. And C- Julius Caesar had populated it with really lower class Romans, in a sense. And, uh, but then once again, it became very rich very quickly. And the reason for that is it's in a unique location. It's a sort of double harbor double port from one side to the other of Greece. Uh, Ships um, came in on one side and then to avoid a very difficult uh, naval sea crossing around the the bottom of Greece, they uh, literally dragged their ships across from one port to the other and so it was a quick way from Asia uh, to Europe and of course, you know, trade, uh, it, it was a very, very rich place quickly again. And because of that, money was a huge issue for um, the Corinthians and for the Corinthian church. Um, it was actually one of the issues in a very fractured relationship, a difficult relationship between Paul and the church he had planted. They didn't like the fact that uh, Paul didn't take any money from them. So usually then, the culture was, a visiting speaker, right, like Paul, um, was expected to have a patron a sort of rich man who supported him. Um, but Paul um, supported himself. He was uh, a tent maker. He had, really had a tent making business, actually, um, along with uh, two other Jewish Christians, Priscilla and Aquila. And uh, so he did his evangelism for free. Uh, Paul made it clear as he wrote to the Corinthians. He didn't think that, therefore, ministers of the gospel shouldn't be paid. In fact, here he's urging them to give money for the support of the gospel, and Paul um, elsewhere receives money from other churches for his ministry. But here in Corinth, it was a strategic missional, missionary approach. He, he, he wanted to get under their sort of ownership idea, and so Paul was his own man as a missionary, and they really didn't like that. Um, they didn't like his preaching style. They thought it wasn't a high enough rhetorical style. And other preachers, uh, Paul calls them here in 2 Corinthians, he calls them sarcastically super apostles. Um, They were saying, well, you've got to be more like Moses. Um, They were really legalists. And uh, these these super apostles uh, then ended up making Paul look even worse to the Corinthians. And given that it was this port city, like most harbor places, very often at least, uh, there are all sorts of sexual temptations that the Corinthians had as well. And so Paul, in various places in his uh, teaching and his correspondence with the Corinthian church, he had to be very firm to the Corinthians. And so 2 Corinthians is written then with an overall message of strength in weakness. God's power is made perfect in Paul's weakness to show that his all-surpassing power is from Christ, not from us. And now then, in the middle of uh, all that are these two great chapters, chapters 8 and 9, on money and generosity and all the rest. So you see, Paul, from the very early days, uh, he had a deal with the apostle Peter Uh, Peter was going to go to the Jews, uh, Paul was going to go to the Gentiles, and part of that arrangement was that Paul undertook uh, that he would uh, help to take care of the poor church in Jerusalem, 
so that when Gentiles became Christians and the church had uh, become planted, uh, they would give uh, a portion of their money to the support of the Jerusalem church. And that's what Paul here is talking about. And he'd always wanted to do that. He talked about it with the, the Corinthians and the church there. Uh, but now they were behind in their giving. And Paul wants them to, to sort of wake up to finish what they had started. And he, has, uh, he, ha- he says several things to help them to wake up and to finish what they had started. He, he tells them about the churches in Macedonia. Uh, the churches in Macedonia, unlike the Corinthian church, which was very rich, the churches in Macedonia were rather poor. And he sort of brings out these Macedonian churches to say to the Corinthians, look, they're very poor, but they're giving out of their poverty, not out of their wealth. And now, hey, how, come along, Corinthians. You know, there's a little bit of friendly competition here. Can't you do even better? And so he's stirring them up by that friendly competition. And now in our passage that we're looking at today, uh, Paul is really only making two points. He's telling the Corinthians uh, to give generously for two reasons. One, because it's good for them. It's good for us. It's good for you. So the prosperity gospel preachers love to use this uh, well-known text, you know, sow um, abundantly and you'll reap abundantly, and they're abusing the text. But the greatest lie is often closest to the truth. There is something good for us about giving. Paul does talk about that. Well, what is that? We're going to look at it. You know, we, we think of giving as a loss. You, know, you give, you no longer have it. It's, I'm losing Paul says, no, it's actually a gain. You're gaining, not losing. And that's counterintuitive, and so we'll need to look at that. But then he also has a higher reason. So he starts pretty low. He puts the cooking on the lowest shelf, if you like. He uses that motivation, uh, if you understand it the right kind of way. He does that. But really, this is, this is far more than that. And so at the end of the passage, verse 15, he has this very exalted kind of language. Thanks, be to God for his inexpressible gift. One translation puts it ineffable. That is above and beyond what you can possibly describe with human words. And uh, this works out for us here with our vision of who we think, who God is and what God's calling us to do, how we're centered on the gospel, how God has put us here as a church uh, to train, to reach through us, to have an impact on the whole world. So it's not, only, it's not only good for you, it also honors God, right? So those are the two points. Let's look at the first one. Give generously because it is good for you. And this is particularly verses 6 through to 11. That's how the passage is divided up. And uh, here under this heading, giving generously because it's good for you, Paul interweaves really two reasons, two reasons why it is good for you. And the first is that God loves to make things that are good for you, for us. That's the kind of God he is. So that text, which some of us will know well, God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, That isn't saying, if you don't feel good about giving, don't give. Um, Sometimes uh, we will not feel good about giving. Um, but uh, you, you need to give anyway because it's good for you, Paul's saying. So you, you, you don't always feel good about going to the gym either, but you do it because it's good for you. 
But, but why is it good for you? Well, because God loves to give you good things. And so he's designed the system. He set up the arrangement so that it is good for you because God loves a cheerful giver. I, I, I don't want to be too crass or too simplistic about it, but God loves happy, truly joyful Christians. So, so God doesn't give you a duty that he doesn't intend to also be a delight. It's a duty to give, but God loves you to be cheerful. So he set up the system in such a way that when we give, it will be good for us. Why? Because God wants us to be truly joyful. He wants us to be, he loves a cheerful giver. So let me bring this right down to earth. Say um, some of us are not happy and not, not truly joyful. We all have different temperaments, different circumstances, different moods, right? But... If, you're not, if you don't have this true joy and you are a Christian and you're not in obvious sin, could it be because you're just not giving or not giving enough? Uh, people say that we should give 10%. Well... In the Old Testament, that was actually the first among several different offerings. So even then, it wasn't a maximum. It was a kind of minimum rule. But in the New Testament, that rule is replaced with an abundance of generosity. So, you know, obviously, DuPage County is quite a rich county, right? And some of us, 10% really isn't enough. We really need to be giving far more than that. Look, I've quoted Wesley, uh, John Wesley once already, uh, and I don't think he got everything right, but I do think he had this idea. He had this spot on. He had it absolutely right. So the other thing that Wesley was determined was, uh, to do was he, he figured out how much he needed to live on, and then any extra he got throughout his life as he became famous and successful... Any extra, he just gave away. Now, what you and I do instead, of course, you know, I've got to think this through too for my own life. What you and I do instead is when we make more, our standard of living goes up too. And so we don't have any more to give. And I ask myself, well, why, why, is, that, why, why is that a common tendency among us? I think because it's hard for us to really believe that by giving, that's what's going to make us truly joyful. Um, Not not in a sense of happy laughing, but truly joyful. Um, C.S. Lewis um, put it like this in one place. Um, Obviously, C.S. Lewis was, you know, this is the pipe-smoking theologian, right? This is not... This is not a masochist, okay? Um, but uh, in one place, C.S. Lewis said, if you're not denying yourself any legitimate pleasure, so obviously it, it's fine to have pleasure, <laughs> and C.S. Lewis did, you know, but if you're not denying yourself any legitimate pleasure, 
And he said, well, you're just not giving enough. So there's this principle that we give generously because it's good for us, that God has set up this system whereby it's going to make us truly joyful. Look, look, you're not doing God any favors when you give, right? God, it's not like God needs our money. I mean, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's giving us, it's a tool for us to be released from the trap of materialism, to be freed, and to experience more of his joy. I I learned this early on in Christian ministry, but you you just preach Christ and you trust God to provide. um, Hudson Taylor has a wonderful quotation about this, the great uh, missionary. He says uh, that God's work done in God's way will never lack for God's provision. God doesn't need it. It's it's something, it's a way of him helping you be Truly joyful? But then there's another part of this, it being good for you, which is here, the law of the harvest. Now, this actually is where those prosperity gospel preachers, the prosperity gospel guys, are so close, but also so, so wrong. The biggest lies are often closest to the truth. So here's how this works. We think uh, that giving is loss. You had it, and now you don't. That is a loss. God is saying, no, actually, it's gain. So how does that work? Paul says it's like a harvest principle. So when you sow you are, in a sense, losing that seed. You've got it in your hand, and you're throwing it out on the field, and now you don't have it. But Paul says, ah, well, there's a law of the harvest. What you sow, you reap. You sow abundantly, you reap abundantly. All other things being equal in normal circumstances, the more you sow, the the bigger the harvest. So giving is not a loss. No, he says it's like sowing. It's a temporary loss for a big gain coming. Now, I don't quite know how to say this, but here's my experience. I have never given without finding that God gives far more back. Now, this is where the prosperity gospel preachers are so close, but so, so wrong. How are they wrong, you say? Well, obviously... Paul defines what kind of harvest he means. It is a harvest of righteousness. So what what does that mean? Well, again, let me just bring it right down. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get a harvest of material goods. Uh, Paul does say you don't need to worry about material things. God can make everything abound to you. It certainly is true that time and time again, business owners, when they start to get radical about giving to God, find their businesses do so well, they can hardly keep up with all that they need to be giving away. God is no man's debtor. But the guaranteed harvest here, this harvest, is righteousness. What does that mean? Well, it means that, say you, perhaps, say you 
Say you're thinking to yourself, I feel like I'm spiritually stuck. I don't have the kind of hunger for God's word that I wish I had. There's a sin that I cannot break. Well, could it be because you're not giving? If you don't sow, there won't be a harvest of righteousness. So that's the first part. Give generously because it's uh, good for you. How is it good for you? God longs you to be truly joyful in Christ. And there's a law of, uh, of this harvest. But, but wait, there's more. Something much bigger than that. And that's the second half of the passage from verse uh, 12 uh, through to verse 15. As I say, it breaks up really easy. First motivation, second motivation. So, you know, if you stop with the first motivation, then you're going to end up with some kind of self-salvation. You know, it's good for me to give, therefore I give. But no, no, no. This is, this is really about honoring God. And how does that, how, how does it honor God? Well, look where he ends in verse 15. You see? Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. As I said earlier, there's one translation has it ineffable. That is beyond human language. It's so amazing. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about their giving? Or is he talking about Christ? And the answer is yes. Because the one reflects the other. See, Paul's thinking here, one commentator put it like this, Paul, uh, Paul Barnett put it like this. This thinking not only defeats self-centeredness, it also defeats narrow-minded congregationalism. In other words, we as a church need to give, and we do. Uh, missionaries, uh, the outreach community center, um, the way we use our buildings, the way we use our teaching resources, we need to be a giving church. And the way Paul expresses this is with his key word here, fellowship. That's the word that Paul uses here and elsewhere when he talks about the Jerusalem gift, the the gift of the Gentiles going back to the poor in Jerusalem. Uh, But what he means by fellowship is not, you know, such an overused word these days, isn't it? It's not that kind of subculture, Christian language. Um... Oh man, wasn't that a sweet time of fellowship, right? Which sort of means we hung out together and watched a Christian movie and echoed each other's prayers, you know, or something. No, fellowship, the Greek word koinonia, which means having in common. So the root idea is having in common, a fellowship, koinonia, having in common, Fellowship is echoed in generosity or koinonikos, sharing. So fellowship is really furthered and emphasized and underlined by giving. Sharing our resources for the sake of the gospel and community together. 
And so this honor to God is the highest motivation. And you say, well, when you give, you're honoring God. You're making God look good. Well, why is that? Because, because, because the answer to what verse 15 about, is about is yes, because the whole gospel is a gift. It's grace. So Christian giving is thanksgiving. See how it connects? For what Christ has done. And so when we give, we not only supply the needs of the ministry, which we certainly do. do. I mean, a church like Cottage Church, you come in here and the pews all look nice and you know, the carpet's clean and the lights are on. And, you know, um, but there's no big endowment or huge business or something behind that's paying the bills. This is a faith operation. It's a week-to-week thing. And so um, we certainly do supply the needs of, of, of the ministry. It's, but it's an expression of the gospel when we give to the fellowship, the church. That's the first gift. Now, I know well, I've got good friends who are leaders of large evangelical uh, ministries. Um, and, you know, I know full well that Wheaton is one of the standard sort of places where you you stop and you set up meetings with donors and you ask them to give to this or that ministry and all the rest and that's that's fine I mean, they're my good friends I believe in their ministry I'm glad they're here they stay in our home right and then there are all the flyers and emails that you and I both get with you know all sorts of techniques to pull on your heartstrings you know crying babies and people dying here there and everywhere right and again giving like that is is good but for the Christian, the first thing is to give to the fellowship, to other Christians, for the sake of the gospel, to the church. Why? Because it's an expression of what God has done in Christ, his inexpressible gift, overflowing, that then flows out through our giving. And then what people see on the receiving end of the giving as we give to missionaries, as a church, as we give of our own uh, gifts individually. What people see is that our giving is motivated by what God has done for us. It's, it's a supernatural thing. Really, this is quite an evangelistic passage. What you want is people looking around and saying, why, why would anyone live their life like that? Their labor, their influence, their finances, their expertise. Why would anyone do that? What, what could possibly be behind that? And the only answer is, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And so it honors God and it points back to the power of the gospel. And anyway, that's pretty much it in terms of why give here. It's good for you. God loves a cheerful giver. There is a law of the harvest. If we're not giving, we'll get stuck spiritually for the harvest of righteousness comes from the sowing of giving. And then the higher motivation comes out of the gospel, what Christ has done. You know, when I first started preaching, um, at least in church circles, I was preaching around before that, but when I first started preaching, you know, as a pastor of a church, a number of people would come to me and they'd say, look, I've noticed something different about your preaching. That's always a slightly scary way to begin a conversation, you know. What, what's that going to be? Um, 
Uh, but what they would say is, and they use different ways of expressing it, but it would come down to the same sort of thing. They'd say, other, other churches I've been to, the message is always about, it's always what, what we have to do, D-O. And of course, there is a place for moral exaltation, and I certainly did then moral exaltation, and I certainly morally exhort now. But what they would say is, other preachers, that's the, that's the fundamental main thing, what you've got to do. Whereas when I hear you preach, it's all about what Jesus has done. Now, you may have sat through other sermons about money and come out with a guilt trip. Not only is that manipulative, it is also entirely counterproductive. The only way for people to be giving people is to be people of the gift, transformed by the grace of Christ, by his spirit, by the gospel of God, by his Inexpressible gift. And so the gospel goes forward through our giving to missionaries, through our giving to all sorts of different things that I've already uh, mentioned as a church. Now some practicalities. When I was talking this through with people this week, they said, Pastor, you've got to get practical, so I'm going to try. Um, You will notice that I've been saying our giving And the reason for that is this, one of the questions we ask when we're looking to call pastors here to the church is about their giving. So I, I know full well, you know, I, I, have, um, I was joking with the, uh, the men at the men's conference that I have four children and one wife, you know. You're, are you still there? You are still there. That's, yeah, okay, good. You didn't know whether you could still laugh, but you can, it's fine. Um... um so I, I have a family, I have you know, things that I'm responsible for, um, and I know full well that my salary comes from the budget of the church, and that's true of the other staff in the church as well. But one of the things we ask about all the people that come and work here is about their giving to the church. Because this, is, this isn't an us-them thing, this is a fellowship thing, this is a we-us thing. Or another practicality. Some of you are college students. I remember being a college student and I hardly had two shekels to rub together, right? I don't have much money now either, but I certainly didn't have any then. What I would say about that is just start. Just start. I remember we had a a sort of giving campaign. It's fine to do that sometimes as a church. We had a giving campaign at the last church I was pastor at when they were building a new building. And it seemed like a huge amount of money we had to raise in a very short time. I never know how much people give, by the way. I just, I never want to know. I don't know. But when we're going through that campaign, we, um, I needed to know how much was coming in. So I did see the amounts, not the people giving the amounts. And uh, my secretary at the time, I remember she, she came in and she just showed me a check. She hid the name on the check, but she showed me the check. It had sort of shaky handwriting. So it was, you know, sometimes when you get older, your handwriting gets a little more shaky. I knew it was from an older person. And in the amount was 
I don't remember the exact figure, but it was something really small. It's like $5. I almost broke down in tears. God doesn't, it's not about, God doesn't need your money. It's about what's, it's going to give you joy. Start. Uh, what about if you're at the other end of the spectrum? So now, I'm, you know, obviously I'm no longer a college student, but I have four children and one wife. You can laugh again if you like, because the last time it was a useless joke. So, um, uh, Four children. So, and, and, and a few years ago, I began to think at the other end of the spectrum, right? So I've got a teenager. I've got a, uh, someone who's almost a teenager and going on 25, right? And so you begin to think, okay, they're going to have to go to college probably. That's going to cost money. And so I get down, I do the spreadsheets, and I'm trying to figure out how we're going to pay for this. And I add up the sums, and I just look at it and go, that's never going to work. I mean, it just isn't. And so I kind of throw away the bit of paper and say, well, I guess God's going to have to do something. I don't know what it is. So I understand some of you have huge pressures. Huge pressures of business, children, college. Bills to pay. I get that. But again, I would say just start. Take a next step in giving or giving more. Because here's what's going to happen. The the apparent pain of your giving, it's not really a pain. It's actually temporary loss for a long-term gain. But the apparent pain will then kind of put pressure on you to reorder your life? Look, we, we were joking this week, and you know, I was joking about what the last hymn for this sermon would be. You know the hymn where it has the line, not one might would I withhold? We're not going to do that, right? <laughs> so again, there's no point giving anyone a guilt trip. It's counterproductive. Giving comes out of understanding what giving is, which can only un- come out of what the gospel is. It's really one of the unique things about Christianity that we believe in grace. No other religion does. And hence we're giving people. I'd also say just get creative. You can give online. That might be a useful discipline for some people. Um, look, just have fun with it. I mean, who could you bless today? I mean, Wow. Um, let me leave you with this. Perhaps you're saying, look, Pastor, I love, I understand that you're, you're being kind of gentle with us because money can be a sensitive topic. I appreciate that. I, I, I'd, love, I'd love to give and I'd love to give more, but it just, to be honest, it just feels risky. There, there, there is a really sensitive spot here and it feels really risky. Here's what I'd say to that. Focus on the inexpressible gift. On the gift of Christ. Though he was rich, became poor. And let that transform your whole life. Your labor, your influence, your finance and uh, your expertise. Let's pray together.
Lord, we want to take a moment to receive. If it is truly true that lives of giving in this way, not out of guilt, but out of grace, is a unique expression of the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. If that's true, Lord, we just need to take a moment now to receive. To receive the gospel. Perhaps for the first time. The cross of Jesus where he died for our sins. Rose to new life and ascended to glory. The gift of his spirit that he, that he has given to us. That, that you, Lord, are with us now. Would you fill us again with your grace? Would you turn our eyes upon you, Jesus? So the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.